I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Good afternoon, Chris. Good to talk again. Um, this is our third podcast of the week. Um, I hope people enjoyed our Brexit interview with Chris Gray. Uh, I thought it was fantastic. I thought he was um, an incredible font of knowledge on the subject. And uh, as I said in our subsequent podcast, I would strongly recommend to anybody really interested in the intricacies of Brexit to um, look up his blog. So today... Uh, There's a number of things that um, I think we should talk about. One is I want to just run over the Irish employment data yesterday for the third quarter. Um, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about inflation. Um, I was speaking at a Society of Actuaries event earlier today, and uh, a guy was asking me a question about the inflation story. So I'd just like to explain or explore a little bit about what's happening on the inflation front Uh, There's a lot going on in China at the moment in terms of the Bank of China trying to stimulate the economy. Uh, COVID numbers are rising again. Apple manufacturing is having a serious problem down there at the moment. So I want to talk about that. Uh, There's amazing stuff happening on oil markets um, in the sense that oil prices have fallen significantly over the last week or so. And um, in the context of what OPEC was talking about a few weeks back, um, keeping oil prices up at $100 a barrel it's at 80, just over 84 today. So I think there is an interesting discussion to be had there. Um, I know you want to tell me something about um, inequality in Wales. And um, given that the Iranians beat him 2-0 today, I'm not sure if that's what you're talking about, but I, I think you have a good story to tell, which I'd like to hear. Um, You're also interested in football club valuations, given that Manchester United and Liverpool are both on the market today. And uh, finally, I believe you've been following some of Nigel Farage's investment advice. Uh, 
So, Chris, if I may start on the employment side in Ireland, uh, we got the employment data yesterday to the end of September. So that's for the third quarter. Um, the total in employment was 2.554 million, which was virtually unchanged from the previous quarter, uh, which is a record high. And over the last 12 months, the Irish economy has created 83,000 new jobs. So uh, that definitely is not the story of a failed state or a failed economy. Um, I was looking at the sectoral breakdown of what happened in the last 12 months. Okay, an overall increase of 83,000 in employment. But in the agriculture sector, there was a decline of 12,400. No idea what's going on there. I suspect it may be an issue of uh, labour supply because agriculture is one of the sectors that is really struggling uh, to get workers at the moment. Um, construction employment up 24,700. And employment in construction sector still isn't back to where it was in 2006, 2007. Uh, but it's, it's climbing strongly. Um, there was a decline of 6,700 in the 12 months in the accommodation and food services sector. And I think that is also reflecting the fact that the accommodation food service sector and hospitality generally is one of those sectors that's struggling big time to get workers. And it's not just an Irish phenomenon. It's happening every place. Um, health, an increase of over 30,200 in the health sector in the last 12 months. Um, and, and, and that begs the question. We hear so much criticism about the quality of the health service here, about the lack of resources in the system, and uh, all of which I would subscribe to because I think um, having an exposure to the Irish health service at a primary or a hospital healthcare um, setting is not a pleasant experience. Um, it took me two months to get an appointment with my GP and it took me about six weeks to get an appointment with my dentist recently. So, um, but 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 it's 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 fascinating that we're seeing that sort of growth in employment. And the final thing I found interesting was on the ICT side, information, communications, technology, the ICT sector. In the 12 months to the end of September, there was an increase of 12,200 in employment in the sector. However, between the second quarter and the third quarter, there was a decline of 5,400. And, and tech isn't exactly a seasonal sector, so I don't think there is a seasonal impact there. Uh, but it's it's probably the first signs we're seeing that the global readjustment in the tech sector is starting to impact unemployment in this country. So my, my final point on this would be... Um, a very, very impressive ongoing job creation performance by the Irish economy. Um, however, there are signs that employment is now starting to top off. Okay, it's starting to level out at, at a very high level. And, and I suspect that has more to do with the fact that we're virtually at full employment than the fact that the economic cycle is starting to turn. There's a bit of that where I think the constraint really is labour supply at the moment. So it's an incredibly positive backdrop for the Irish economy. And I think one that should stand the economy in pretty good stead as we move into choppier waters in 2023. Can I just interrupt you there, Jim? You and I just want to do a postscript, a postscript on the OECD forecast that we talked about the other day. I've had a deeper dive into them. The only thing I would say is that the 
the, the, the Irish story is astonishing because I'm looking at the 2023 numbers, the next year, next calendar year forecasts for the whole OECD area, not just a few economies. And do you, for, for economic growth, however measured, let's abstract from GDP, GNI star and modified domestic demand. But you will be able to guess which country is at the top notwithstanding everything that we're saying about the headwinds that Ireland is facing, which countries at the top of the league table, probably about 40 countries, it's Ireland. It's pretty um, much Ireland, yeah. Yeah, it, it is. The UK is not at the bottom. Chile and Sweden are just marginally worse off, according to these forecasts for next year. All of the forecasts make for grim reading, as we said the other day, because the growth is, generally speaking, is so much slower than, than before. But it's the smaller economies, quite unlike Ireland in terms of their economies, but in terms of their size, they're probably more in keeping. Turkey is up there. Israel is up there. Costa Rica. Australia is is forecast to do relatively well next year. It's the major economies that aren't doing well. But Ireland is up there. It's, It's still, relatively speaking, a great story. But the difference in the graph between 2023 and 2022 is stark. There's just an awful lot less growth around. That's all I wanted to interrupt you with. Just goes on with this narrative we've been pursuing for a long time about the remarkable performance of this country. And uh, it definitely flies in the face of the failed state narrative that's still being thrown out there. Lots of stuff happening in China, Chris. And I know we, you know, we got a few comments um, on the Substack about, and in response to the pods, about, uh, you know, we, we tend to concentrate on the UK Ireland, you know, Europe, the States a bit. And uh, what's happening in the broader world um, is of interest to some listeners. And, you know, I look at China, the world's second largest economy, um, conventionally measured, uh, second largest population in the world. I think it's been overtaken by India in the last 12 months, but a major economy. And during the, okay, the OECD forecast the other day is looking at growth in the world economy of 2.2% in 2023. And that is significantly lower than the global growth forecast we saw back in 2007, 8 and 9. And the reason why the global growth story back then looked relatively good, despite the fact that there were some countries in there, including the United States and Europe, that were experiencing really strong contraction in activity. But uh, the reason why the overall global figure looked reasonable was because China continued to grow strongly during that period. And really, China was the default growth economy for the rest of the world. And now that is starting to change. And I think that 2.2% global growth forecast for the OECD is reflecting the fact that the contribution from China is going to be a lot less impressive over the next couple of years. Um, and there's, there's many reasons for this. Uh, the Xi Jinping and his move towards authoritarianism certainly is not good for business investment. Uh, but COVID has been a huge issue since the beginning of the year. Um, the country has been subjected to huge, significant levels of restriction. And indeed, I believe the Chinese were very irate to see footage from the World Cup with supporters in thousands of supporters sitting in stands watching the football without masks, whereas the Chinese can't go outside the door if they're allowed out without wearing a mask. And um, numbers, okay, it's there was a bit of an improvement recently and some of the restrictions were lifted, but now we're starting to see a fresh surge. Um, and in Beijing, which is a city of 22 million people, 
um, there's been a massive surge um, in that city and the controls are now being ramped up again. And apparently there are massive problems with the delivery of grocery services, for example. One of the problems they've got, one of the many problems they've got, is that they've all been vaccinated to the extent that they've been vaccinated because there are questions over just how many Chinese people have had a vaccine, whether it's one, two, three or four doses, is that they've all been vaccinated against the wrong virus because obviously they got Omicron circulating now and the current vaccines that they're using are useless against Omicron. And the only thing that's apparently, according to the medics that I read about and speak to, the thing that we've got going is that combination of natural immunity because we've all had COVID and uh, the vaccination. And that's why we're getting away with it to the extent that we are. The second thing I'd say about the Chinese story, and this is a, a kind of a political point, zero COVID was a nonsense strategy to begin with, because it, it's a forever strategy, as the Chinese are finding out, that once you start it, unless you are uh, an island that can completely isolate yourself from the rest of the world, a la Australia and New Zealand, and even their zero COVID policies eventually crumbled, and uh, eventually everybody had to get it. Their argument would be that they were right to pursue their zero COVID until the vaccines came along. And I totally accept their argument. But the political point about the Chinese zero COVID policy is just how much it clearly appeals zero COVID as a strategy to the authoritarian mindset. And I think back to our own debates in Britain and in Ireland, and especially Ireland, actually, about whether or not, if you were to look through the cast of characters that uh, advocated zero COVID, with, with exceptions, not by, by no means all of them. Some people were absolutely non-authoritarian and genuine about it, whether it just was an appeal to the authoritarian personality. And so it's just a question rather than even a hypothesis that, that interests me at the moment from looking at what the Chinese are doing. But you mentioned the World Cup and you've mentioned Asia. You've also mentioned that Iran has beaten Wales today. Uh, a question for you, Jim, out of the blue. We haven't discussed this. I don't know whether you saw Mick Wallace, one of your uh, best mates, I believe. Indeed, uh, I saw him, yeah. Talking about Iran in the European yeah. Parliament. Yeah. Wasn't that just extraordinary? It was, abso- it was absolutely extraordinary, Chris. It was, uh, I-, I mean, everything Wallace and Claire Daly have been getting up to since the savage Russian invasion of Ukraine um, to me has been reprehensible and um, now he's moving to Iran. I mean, it's it's quite extraordinary. I mean, I hope the people of Wexford and the people of Leinster who voted him in as an MEP are proud of themselves because certainly as a representative of me as an Irish person in Brussels, I certainly am not proud. Uh, it's, it's absolutely mad stuff. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. On the China thing, you know, apart from COVID, uh, the Bank of China, and, and one of the problems we have, of course, with China is that it's the lack of reliable data. You know, it's, it's difficult to get a real handle on what's happening there. But the Bank of China has today cut the reserve requirements for financial institutions again. So that's basically, it basically means that um, financial institutions have to hold less capital. And the motivation behind that is to get the banks to lend more money and to support the real economy. And the reserve requirements are now at the lowest level since 2007. So that is also indicative of the strains facing that economy at the moment. And then the final point I would make for a hand back to is uh, the stories about violent protests outside Apple's main manufacturing plant in China, which is called iPhone City. Um, I'm not sure what's going on there, but what I am sure is that it certainly poses huge question marks over these multinational companies where they actually invest, um, where they operate from. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that is linked to all of this, because one of my favorite themes, of course, is that everything is linked to everything else, is I think, as you've already mentioned, the weakness in the oil price that we've seen in recent days and weeks, actually, is not unconnected with what is going on in China. It's not unconnected to the zero COVID policy. Zero COVID is damaging the economy. Economic growth is much less than it would otherwise be. And we're seeing headlines about how Asian demand for oil is slipping. And in fact, the oil market appears at the moment to be in surplus supply globally. Hence, oil prices are coming down. Uh, and earlier this week, the price of Brent, the benchmark uh, North Sea Brent oil price, was at its lowest since January of this year. So in nearly a year, um, we're at lower oil prices, which serves as a reminder that if you, if you remember, Jim, a couple of months ago when OPEC uh, annoyed Joe Biden uh, and frustrated his efforts to get an increase in OPEC supply to get the oil price down, all of the world's oil experts said that the oil market was in a very tight situation. Demand was at least equal to supply, if not exceeding it in some areas of the world, if that's possible, if that makes any sense. And that uh, oil prices were likely to, to be set at a floor of $100. And now we've got... West Texas in the 70s and Brent in the low 80s. So there's been quite a big fall from the OPEC target that cheesed off the White House so much. So it always, uh, I think it's all another forecast that has, has proved wrong. Well, let, let's uh, see how quickly our um, friends in the petrol retail industry here pass this on to us. And in the UK, same thing. I've noticed actually all pro uh, petrol prices, because I filled up the other day, um, ha have fallen in the UK over the last few days, not by much, but by a bit. Yeah, same so fingers crossed that that will help. But another factor driving oil prices down has been this ongoing thing in the European Union to cap the price of Russian uh, imports of oil into, the, into, the, into Europe and indeed elsewhere. And it's a totally bizarre thing that the purchaser of oil uh, tries to set the price. Now, the reason why they're doing this is, I think, both obvious and deeply cynical to the point of absurdity, actually. So there were there have been calls for Europe to stop buying any European, uh, buy any Russian oil at all. 
And the Europeans and the Americans have said, well, we don't like this idea because that would be akin to shooting ourselves in the foot because we, we need Russian oil. Um, then, be, then we see the arguments, well, stop. how do we stop financing Russia's war on Ukraine? And the answer is, well, we want to stop giving Putin money, but we want to keep Russia's oil flowing. So how do we square that circle? Well, we'll just be a little bit virtuous, if you like, and we'll try and uh, at the margin reduce his revenues from his oil exports, but we'll keep buying them. And so there's been this ongoing attempt, which, as we speak, is still being talked about in Europe, um, about the maximum price they will pay Russia for its oil. Russia, of course, uh, may not go along with this. Um, it might, I don't know, it's, it's a bizarre looking glass world, this particular um, capping of the Russian oil price. But as I say, it's a deeply cynical thing of, about saying, well, we don't want to finance the war machine, but equally, we want his oil. So how are we going to do that? And you've got some countries saying that the price, $65 a barrel, is, is, is the right one. You've got some countries saying it's too high. I think the polls, for example, are saying it's too high. And from what I read on Bloomberg today, the Greeks, who have an incentive for the oil price to be high, are saying that it's too low. And the reason why the Greeks apparently want the oil price to be higher is because of all their shipping industry, because their shipping revenues are dependent on the value of the cargoes that their ships carry. So to the extent that they're oil tankers, the more valuable the cargo, the more money the ship owners will actually receive. So it, it's there's so much nonsense going on around this oil price thing. I don't know where it all lands, but as you say, let's just hope that the price of the pump comes down a little bit. Yeah, and Chris, in that regard, um, if you look at what has happened on the inflation front over the last 12 months, a lot of it has been energy related. And um, I, I, I was speaking, as I said earlier, at the Society of Actuaries in Ireland conference this morning, and um, I was a question came up about inflation and how, you know, central bankers really haven't a clue how to forecast inflation. And as a consequence of that, they end up making policy mistakes. And he was specifically referring to what central bankers were saying at the beginning of this year about the transitory nature of inflation and about the requirement not to do very much on the interest rate front. Um, and I, I was just looking at the OECD's inflation forecasts. And for example, for the euro area, an average rate of 8.3% this year, 6.8% next year. And then in 2024, falling all the way to 3.4%. Ireland, 8.4, 7.2, and 2.9 in 2024. And Germany, 8.5% in 22, 8% in 23, 3.3% in 24. I could go on, but every country I look at, um, the OECD forecast has, you know, 23 is the, sorry, 22 is the peak a bit of a decline in the annual rate in 23, and then it literally collapses back to um, normal levels in 2024. Forecasts like that always worry me in a sense that it's just too much of a perfect curve. We know, we know it's not going to happen like that. And yeah. The only thing I'd say, actually, is that that sort of forecast about inflation falling from here will be right one day. It's most unlikely to fall in that straight line, I would have thought, in those very smooth charts. And the OECD are just forecasting more in hope than actual expectation. As always with these things, it's the narrative around the forecast numbers that is equally interesting. 
And it's quite clear that they're worried that inflation is becoming more embedded and more widespread than those smooth declines from here would actually suggest. So there is some tension between their narrative and their numbers, a tension which I would share, actually. I think it it is starting to look a bit stickier in some economies, not all. Uh, But they could be right, and they will be right one day. Inflation will start to fall from here, except the only thing is we don't know where when here actually is. Let's hope that it is now. Yeah, I I guess if um, oil prices continue to trade down at these levels and fall further, which is certainly possible based on the global supply um, and demand that we were talking about a second ago, um, the year-on-year comparisons during 2023 should fall sharply, the base effect. But um, food is certainly taking over as a major driver, and I, I don't see a decline happening there. I, I have to say, based on global food supply, based on fertilizer costs, um, generally the input costs in um, manufacturing and growing food. So, uh, yeah, I'd be, I'd be concerned about all of that. And of course, the next test in Europe will come on December 15th when the European Central Bank has its next um, interest rate setting meeting. And uh, there has been an expectation that having delivered two interest rate increases of three quarters of 1%, that they would go back to a half percent in December. But I note a few council members in the ECB um, are now starting to talk about uh, a 0.75% increase in December, which I think personally would be a massive mistake given the economic momentum and the rapidity with which it's declining in the euro area at the moment. Uh, but, you know, how central bankers view inflation um, is going to be the big story in 2023, I think, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, and uh, I think that with energy prices doing what they've done, there is a good chance that the OECD could be right. But I think it's conditional on energy prices not going up again. If energy prices resume their clock their climb say for example we get a really horrible winter here in europe and or the united states northern hemisphere generally then their inflation forecasts could be in trouble but if we get through this winter without oil and gas prices going up again then i think that there is a reasonable chance that the here that i mentioned earlier on actually is now chris as i look at you on the screen here um and thankfully on the podcast they can't see us um, I notice you're wearing a Welsh hat. Okay. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. So I know I know you wanted to talk to me about inequality in Wales. Yeah, there's um, an event. There was an event yesterday, I think it was, in Swansea, uh, a city uh, about an hour's drive from Cardiff on, on the south coast of Wales. And it was a an event with the Resolution Foundation. It's a think tank, London-based think tank that you may have heard of that is very interested in inequality, Does publishes a lot of fantastic research. From a centre-left perspective, uh, I would guess would be a reasonable thing to say about the Resolution Foundation. Yeah, I've sat in on a number of their webinars in the last year. They, they produced terrific stuff. So they had, mm-hmm. they had a, a forum in Swansea yesterday where um, they presented all sorts of stuff. And it was the comments of the Welsh finance minister that really caught my attention. And I don't want to go into it too much, but they they really were both in a a sort of strange way, amusing, um, sad. uh, And I I think with all sorts of resonance for for the problems facing the UK. 
they were talking about UK inequality and about how terrible it is and how extreme it is relative to other European countries. And you and I talked about this on this pod. And Fawn Gethin, who is the Welsh finance minister, stood up and said, well, this is more, and I'm paraphrasing slightly uh, for the sake of brevity, this is more an English than a Welsh problem, UK inequality. It's very bad in England, um, but it isn't nearly so bad in Wales. We don't have hardly as much inequality as the English do. And he went on to explain why Wales doesn't have much inequality compared to England, or indeed at all, actually. And what you might expect some deep statistical analysis or some socio-political explanation. There's been a Labour government in Wales since devolution. No, it was a very simple one-line explanation for why Wales doesn't have much inequality. And again, I'm paraphrasing slightly, but what Mr Gething went on to say is Wales doesn't have inequality because it doesn't have any rich people. <laughs> and to, to an extent, that's actually true. Uh, I've, I've often wound up my English friends by telling them that there is no middle class in Wales because everybody in Wales, most people in Wales don't have enough money to consider themselves to be middle class, at least relative to their English counterparts. And there, of course, there's lots of serious points to be made about that kind of discussion about the nature of the Welsh economy versus the English economy, which we can leave to another day. But I think it makes or it draws a dotted line connection thing to something that has struck me about about the UK in all of my comments about the structural problems that it faces. This one I haven't made. Um, when I was a youngster on trips up to London from where I grew up, in Wales, it was always noticeable how much richer London was as a city, uh, how different it was to uh, my hometown of Cardiff. But you always knew that essentially you were in the, the UK, you were in the same kind of country, that you were you were in a place that had its differences, but also loads of similarities compared to where you grew up. Yes, it was bigger. Yes, it was richer. But it was it was a, a clearly a, a British city. Um, with, with, as I say, lots of similarities, lots of differences. You go to London now from a place like Cardiff, from one of the the poorer regions of England, poorer regions of Wales or Scotland. And honestly, Jim, it's like visiting a different country. It is said that London has become a global city. I would say, yeah, absolutely. It's become a global city. And in all respects, other than physically, it's sort of floated off into the into the ocean somewhere. And you are going, I think... The, the impression a lot of Brits have when they visit London these days is that they are actually visiting a foreign country compared to their hometown, even though they might have only travelled an hour or two to get there. Um, and I think that's one of the key problems that the UK faces. It's just the inequality. You can see where it is. It, you know, the, all of the rich people live in the southeast of England, more or less. I, again, paraphrase or exaggerate to make the point. And um, it works both ways because Londoners increasingly recognise that they are bankrolling the rest of the UK. The amount of tax that they pay that then gets shoveled to the Welsh, to the Scottish, to the people in the North East, to the people in Northern Ireland. Um, at the moment, they're not terribly resentful. But in this age of austerity 2.0, I wonder whether that relative calm about uh, the, the money that the Southeast English taxpayer pays to the rest of the UK, whether it is going to be you know, so simple going forward but it, it's it's a it's it's it, one of those many aspects that i think that the uk faces and it's going to to struggle with going forward so but it, jim yeah it was that great leveling up that so benefited boris in the last general election 
Yeah, well, leveling up hasn't touched Wales. I can no. tell you that for nothing. Jim, I wanted to just mention uh, some share prices. This is a finance podcast, amongst other things. Um, and there is a share price that's up 68% today. It's the day after Thanksgiving in on the New York Stock Exchange. And the, the overall market is flat as a result of everybody in the state still being on holiday. But there is a stock, a share price that's up 68%. Do you know what it is? Haven't a clue, Chris. It's Manchester United. Okay. And so, as we know, both Liverpool and Manchester United have been put up for sale. And there are so many different aspects of this. I, I could almost devote a whole podcast to it. The Saudis have said they're interested in both clubs, in participating right. in some way. Just what um, English football needs. I, I want the owner of Liverpool, or the the I think the owner of Fenway Sports Group, as it's called, a guy called John Henry. He's yeah. a hedge hedge fund guy. Back in the day when I used to work in this industry, I very briefly, on one occasion only, met him in Dublin, actually, a um, long, long time ago, different different lifetime. Um, he's actually quite a nice guy, by all accounts. And then there's the Glazer family owns Manchester United. Both appear to be interested in cashing in. The Glazers are and John Henry and his Fenway Sports Group are reputed to be making if they sell it at the price that they want, billions out of their original investment. They both, I think, bought their clubs, respective clubs, for hundreds of millions and are going to sell it for multiple billions. So a lot of money. I wonder if it's the peak in um, football club share prices. I don't know. Uh, But these are extraordinary stories about how you can um, buy a club, which is what I certainly the way in which it's been written about for Manchester United is that you borrow a lot of money, buy a football club, wait a few years, do not invest a penny in it. Um, you, all you've ever put into the club has been borrowed money to buy shares, apparently. And then you sell a few years later and make hundreds of millions. And I know that Manchester United fans have lots of complaints about that strategy for um, for Manchester United, other club owners have not pursued that strategy. Most owners of football clubs in the UK have actually put money into it since they originally bought it. I think Manchester United is an exception, but um, it's a great way to make a billion, isn't it, or two? Yeah, it's, it's, it certainly is. Um, and I and I guess getting um, cancelling Ronaldo's contract has probably increased the attractiveness of United. Um, and has probably had some contribution to that share price performance. In relation to football, I don't know, did you see the Brazilian performance last night? I did not. Uh, the, the Spurs striker scored a most amazing goal. But for listeners who are interested in football, I would ask them to uh, Google or YouTube, whatever. Uh, there was a lady called Claudia Pina who was playing for Barcelona Femina last night, the Barcelona ladies football team. And um, she scores the most amazing goal um, at the new Camp last night. So um, I think it's important for gender balance here to recognise when you get a great goal from a Brazilian chap, uh, there's a Barcelona lady who has um, certainly emulated him. Amazing. Jim, um, you're showing your age now. I am, indeed. I've, I've I am got, indeed. I've got, no, 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 the, in your use of language, you've, you, you, you really don't, get with the times um and you've got to understand that you're not actually allowed to use the word lady anymore really you must say woman footballer yes right. using the using the word lady reveals you to be a member of the patriarchy that has oppressed women for centuries and you must stop doing it stop being an oppressor mate oh shit okay i apologize for that um Chris- Jim, i wanted to talk a little bit more about share prices rather than being politically correct 
or incorrect in your yeah. particular case. You, you you said something to me today before this podcast about um, a sitting MP with an investment newsletter. No, he's not a sitting MP. Um, oh, an, sorry, it's Farage. I an ex, ex-MEP. So an sorry, ex-MEP I, I was thinking Parliament. of Jacob, Jacob Rees-Mogg, so it's well, Farage. Very easy to get the two confused, I must admit. They both oh, look God. very similar, sort of. Um, and there's a great, great story on Bloomberg uh, with a... The headline is a question. Can Nigel Farage make you rich? And it begins by pointing out that he has indeed spent years in the city of London, in the financial district, um, followed in his father and his grandfather's footsteps. But of course, as we know, with huge consequence, moved into politics and uh, has uh, been responsible almost single handedly, almost for Brexit and the situation the UK finds itself in today. And the the article goes on these days when he's not palling around with Donald Trump, filming personalized videos on Cameo or hawking his own brand gin. He can be found sharing ideas via his personal finance newsletter, and it's called Fortune and Freedom. Of course it is. And it goes on to actually ask what happens if you follow the recommendations contained in the newsletter? And Bloomberg have been doing this for months since it started, as far as I can tell. And the answer is, no, you would not have made much money, uh, certainly relative to the stock market. And they tracked a portfolio of stocks that Farage has promoted, investing a notional hundred grand. And the 16 stocks range from things you'd have heard of, like Unilever to gold. And two years on, you'd have been £25,000 richer, at least on paper, in terms of this paper exercise, if you'd simply stuck the money in a simple index tracker. For those of you who are not uh, investment professionals or indeed investors of any kind, an index tracker is simply when you just put the money in the overall stock market and you get what the index, what the FTSE in this particular case would have returned. So um, he's not doing very well. Maybe he should should have stuck to Brexit. And maybe that's partly the motivation for this week. He's actually threatened to make a return to politics, presumably away from the world of finance, in order to stop Jeremy Hunt, the British Chancellor of the Exchequer, betraying Brexit. I'll shut up because I know that I've talked far too much about this topic this week already. But I'll let yeah, you. I'll let I, you finish there. Jim. Yeah, I'll just wrap. I, I have to apologise for uh, referring to a lady footballer. Um, I'm, I'm just not aware of the political correctness. I, w- I was trying to make a very gender balanced statement there, but the I know you were, mate, and um, so um, I hope you. I, I hope you know um, that I wasn't. It, being it's it's been serious. a long. It's been a long week, Chris, and getting Nigel Farage mixed up with Jacob Reese Mogg is another major faux pas. Um, the do you United mean? States, do you mean faux pas? Faux pas, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, <laughs> it's been a long week. The United States and England tonight. Um, the result will be known by the time this pod is published. But uh, unfortunately, I can't watch it because there's a very good friend of mine who works in the forces of law and order in Donnybrook. He's having a retirement due tonight. So I'm going along to that. So um, I'll record the game and watch it at some stage tomorrow. Um, I think it should be interesting. Yeah, so, will, Chris, will, will you have a headache in the morning, Jim? Uh, God, no, at my age. No, no. Uh, Chris, have a great weekend and uh, good to talk again. And uh as I said at the beginning, I hope um, our listeners haven't been inundated with three pods in one week. But uh, I certainly feel that uh, Chris Gray's contribution has really um, enhanced our offering in the last week. So I hope our listeners share my view. Absolutely. Take it easy, Jim. Have a great weekend yeah, and a good evening. Bye. Cheers, mate. 
You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 